Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alan Sussman, endocrinologist and author of Saving the Art of Medicine. With a title like that, how could Dr. Sussman not be on the show? But before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, locumstory.com. Maybe you're curious about locums and how it might fit into your career story, but do you know all the different reasons physicians choose locums and how it works for them? At locumstory.com, you can hear firsthand stories as diverse as physicians themselves. There's not one solution for everyone. The variety of opportunities might surprise you. Locum Story is an unbiased educational resource. It has tools that let you explore trends in your specialty and compare different locums agencies. There's even a simple quiz to see if locums is right for you. Do your own research at locumstory.com. It's easy. All right. And now to my guest. Welcome, Dr. Sussman. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Great to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Glad thanks be for here. being here. You know, I, I want to dive right in and talk about your book, Saving the Art of Medicine. Well, of course, this is the Art of Medicine uh, podcast. So when I saw that, it's like, yep, find a slot for him. Um, you know, I started the Art of Medicine podcast four years ago because I thought, well, you know, it, it's an important topic. It doesn't fit neatly into any other category, but it's really uh, critical to uh, helping people, you know, get through illness and disease and their lives and also helping physicians with uh, the challenge of taking care of patients, which uh, is not easy to teach. And in fact, one of the questions I want to ask you, and you can either answer now or later, is how do I do a better job of teaching my students and residents about the art of medicine? How can I make sure we do save the art of medicine when it seems like there are so many uh, factors, economics of medicine being one, kind of working against us? So with that introduction, yeah. tell me why, who you are and why you wrote the book. Okay. Okay. Well, I had a, uh, I am retired now. I was a board certified endocrinologist and had, and was in practice for 35 years and I was very much involved with the art of medicine as well as the science of medicine. So there's really two parts to medicine. And if you go back in history, the, the art was all there was at one time in terms of the relationship between, between people. If you go all the way back to shamanism, which actually does probably have some benefit, it's been around for millennia, that was an intense human relationship that was there. And that, and that had benefit and still does in very limited parts of the world. Eventually, just for the last 150 years or so, science has become important and has made amazing discoveries and, and has really helped millions of people for sure. But it's been at the expense of the art that first part of what medicine was all about. If you look at Hippocrates, it, the one thing we try to still maintain from that is the Hippocratic Oath, which is really an ethical stance uh, of, of what doctors should be doing. 
not the financial bean counting part of it, which has become a very important part of medicine as, as it has become more and more institutionalized. So I want to balance the two. And to me, uh, the way I balance it has to be somewhat individually. There isn't a blanket answer because the art, it's like, it's like looking at a, a picture. Uh, what one person sees in the picture is not what someone else sees in the picture. Is one point of view valid and the other point of view not valid? Obviously not. It's subjective and they both can have meaning. And that subjective part of medicine needs to still be honored rather than just the truly objective part of medicine, which is the science. Unfortunately, uh, in my book, Saving the Art of Medicine, I talk about the science, where I've done hundreds of evidence-based studies. I, I understand them well, and also understand their limitations. And even if you look at the best studies, there's glitches in them. They're not truly objective. They, they try to get close to it. Uh, my own personal biases is that you can't have a perfectly good uh, uh, study, evidence-based study, because it's done by human beings. Human beings have their biases, and we all know how, how far wide and spread they can be, including how we become focused in what we try to look at. And that we then not look at other areas of how of how a disease can be looked at. Um, uh, and you look at studies, which studies get which studies get published? The studies that get published usually are ones that try to verify a certain point of view. And if you have a completely negative study, it's not as likely to get published, nor is the person doing the study want to publish it. So there is just inherent biases that has to be looked at. But don't. But that doesn't mean that we should stop doing science. Not at all. It's extremely important. I just want this rebalancing to go on. Okay, well, first, let me just say that the art of medicine, this podcast fully accepts the importance of science. I've done uh, many clinical trials myself, and I rely very heavily on science. But the art of medicine, I think, stands on the shoulders of science and incorporates science. So I don't want anyone to think that this is uh, anti-science uh, in any way. I think what we're trying to do is say, hey, there, there's an elephant in the room, right? And that's the human being that yeah. needs to take advantage of the science. But they have a lot of, well, what do you call it? soft qualities, right? You know, there's other things like... Maybe they don't trust you, or maybe they can't afford the medicine, you know, right. or maybe there's a reason they don't want to take it. Well, like, you know, my neighbor took that medicine and he died, so I'm not taking it. You know, there's, there's, uh, people are complicated. Yes. And, um, I, yes. And I, and I definitely, I know I talk about some limitations, but again, I, I'm very, was very much a scientist and it is, I agree with you. It's completely important. But one area that uh, that is involved in evidence-based medicine, where it's trying to be deprecated, is placebo effect. Just inherently, uh, uh, you try to eliminate placebo effect when you're looking at the action of medications and pharmaceuticals. Uh, 
so so then there's uh, that that means that there is a thought that placebos are important. <clears throat> if they weren't important, you wouldn't worry about them. So in practice, ways of manipulating and using placebo effect can be very important and can truly enhance the effect of uh, physiologic pharmaceutical agents. Uh, one, one, uh, there, there are a host of studies that have to do with placebo effect, including some interesting ones where, let's say, an, an irritable bowel syndrome. They, uh, they actually told the patients that you're going to be given an inert substance, a placebo, something that hasn't been shown to work at all. But when they looked at the results, there was a, a marked improvement in the patient's symptoms. Uh, so it didn't make a difference whether it was active or not. Uh, it, was, it was another effect. Now, what exactly that is can be debated, but it has to probably do with human relationship, a sense of positivity that the person can have. And, and, and if a person thinks some, something can work, that's much better than if you think it's not going to work. Uh, and there's been other work with placebos too, uh, the opposite, nocebo effect of how you can make things worse than what they are, that you could almost, there's, there's old studies that show in asthma that you can give an agent which physiologically should improve lung functioning. Uh, and depending on how you manipulate the patient and believing what they're getting, you can give them something that's supposed to enhance that effect, but you're told them that this probably won't work and won't do anything and might be harmful and actually reverse the physiologic effect that's going on. So our mind is very important uh, in this whole process and is an important part of the art of medicine. And of course, a very other important part is human relationship. And these days that's becoming more and more important. We have the Surgeon General, who's a major proponent of human relationship. Uh, he's written about it. And again, we have the whole epidemic of what's called loneliness. And loneliness leads to increased amount of, of potential diseases or worsening disease process that's there. Now, what is that about? Uh, it shows the importance of human relationship that can help uh, people, as you're saying. It's a, you can consider it an adjunct. I consider it an extraordinarily important adjunct. Tell me, in your 35 years of practice, give me an example of how you employed the art of medicine with one of your patients. Okay. The um, one, one that comes to mind that's not the placebo effect, but it's the human relationship part of what goes on. And there was a diabetic young at the time. He was a teenager moved up from another state to Washington with his mom, uh, divorced parents, and he had type 1 insulin-dependent diabetes. And while he was in the other state, he had multiple episodes of ketoacidosis. Multiple, multiple. It's very severe. Ketoacidosis is a process that can lead 
to the death of the individual from metabolic imbalance. Uh, then, then he came up here and he was a nice kid, but he would not test his blood sugar. He had been so traumatized by needles that he refused to do that. Now he did take insulin because he knew if he didn't take the insulin, he would, he would not be able to live. And we went through this for years where I kept on saying is you must test, you must test your blood sugar. You must test your blood sugar. And he, and he said, no, uh, no, I'm not going to do it to the point that it almost became a, I wouldn't call it a complete joke, but we became a little lighthearted about it. He would come in and before I could say anything, he would look at me and say, no, haven't started, not, not testing. And that's important because the dose of the insulin depends on the blood sugar, right? So if you can't dose it accurately unless you do the other part. So that's how come you kept having this life-threatening ketoacidosis. Well, 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 he was able to balance things pretty well without it. But again, also the opposite, even of low blood sugars, right? If he tried to be too good, he might have low blood sugars. So, so he couldn't do as well as he can do but he was pretty good at trying to balance diet with it. But I never gave up with the idea that he should do it. Now, in medicine and in some practices, they'd say, I can't take care of this patient. He's not taking care of himself. How am I supposed to take care of him? And I just felt it was very important for me to have a relationship with him over time and to try to manipulate as well as we can with what he was willing to do rather than trying to institute something that he didn't want to do that then probably wouldn't work. Well, he eventually got married. I'd seen him for a decade uh, and he had a baby. Uh, and as soon as he had the baby, he came in the next time with me and he looked at me and he said, let's start testing. So, so it's, it was a sense of developing relationship with him of getting further, getting further into what would be helpful to him, but understanding you're dealing with people and just why the way things are told the way they should be might not be appropriate for the person. Um, I, I personally don't believe that if I said, I can't treat you unless you do what I want you to do, that that would have worked. And he had a life-changing event, the birth of his child, that sent him a message that now he was responsible for someone besides himself, so he better take care of himself so he could provide for his child. And then he came to you. And, and, and Yeah, and it's very interesting how sometimes that's the way it works, right? People can't do it for themselves. They do it for other reasons or for whatever reason. If it works out well, that's a good reason. And uh, was he at, well... Uh, we used to use the word compliant, right? Following instructions. Now we use the word uh, adherent, right? Sticking to instructions. Uh, so after that, was he a pretty good patient? Oh, 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 yes, he was. You know, you see, I would never call him a bad patient. Actually, I think I, I, I would, I, I would say he was, he was limited in taking care of himself uh, in some ways, but in other ways, he wasn't. He was actually pretty good with diet. And as we all know, diet can be a very difficult area for anyone to take care of. And sure. particularly if you have diabetes, it can it becomes more important, but also that doesn't make it any easier to do it. 
So you could have someone who's testing. I don't know which is better. In fact, I think he was better off. I think it's better that he didn't test, but he was pretty careful with his diet than someone who was testing and saying, I'm doing what I'm supposed to doing, but they're not following the diet. All right. So let me get back. Why write the book? I mean, it, it took longer than a weekend, right? To put it all together. And it, 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 it did. Uh, I had an eclectic career, first of all, in terms of uh, also being a clinical assistant professor at the U and uh, doing evidence-based studies through a clinical research center that I had started, uh, then got involved in alternative medicine and was on a state commission for two years and trying to look at the benefits of alternative medicine and how that can be utilized in allopathic medicine. And then I got involved in meditation work and started running healthcare meditation groups. So I, I've been involved in all sorts of areas of medicine. Then I retired and then COVID happened. I had to find something to do. You know, I think there are uh, there were a few other books that uh, were uh, sort of inspired by uh, COVID, <laughs> by the the time that that kind of set aside. It's like, whoa, I can't. There's so many things I can't do. What can I do? So you spent a good amount of your time uh, handwriting or at the computer. 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 I, I, I'm not much better at reading my handwriting than anyone else's. So, <laughs> so it's a little bit of an autobiography, I guess. It's book. a legacy. It's a it's a it's a legacy all altogether. And there's a lot of stories in there, as well as my general philosophy that that we're talking about right now, the importance of art of medicine, and and in general, some of the general principles I really try to live by is. First of all, humility. I don't know all the answers. And, and so therefore, just like you're doing on this podcast, you're trying to learn. You're looking at alternative ways how, uh, how, how people can look at things and understand that might have some importance too. So, so one thing is humility, humility for myself, humility how I practice, and then the development of compassion as being very important. How can I, how can I be there with the patient, which then also leads to another important part, self-compassion. I got to be compassionate to myself too, which took quite a, uh, uh, quite a long time for me to learn that I needed to take care of myself as well as others. Well, as I was reading your book, I was, I appreciated your quote from Isaac Asimov, you know, one of, one of my heroes when I was uh, growing up. Uh, the saddest aspect of life now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. And uh, I think that the, the wisdom part is sort of the art of medicine, right? I mean, you've got all these facts, you've got all these data, but the wisdom is, well, how much of it do I believe? How much of it do I use for that particular patient? I think it's the the wisdom part that's that's really tough. Yes, yes. There's a uh, there's a Greek word phronesis uh, that that's which is about wisdom, and that's what uh, Hippocrates believed in. Uh, and so that idea of wisdom goes way back. And wisdom. How do you get wisdom? You get wisdom through experience. 
and and so our experiences are are very important and we have to learn learn from them and grow from them all right so back to my original question how do i impart wisdom to my students and residents who are kind of overwhelmed learning, you know, anatomy and physiology and medications, you know, with the science of medicine, how do I steer them so that they don't have to wait until they're 70 years old to figure this out? Well, I, all right. Somewhat, right, one, one part is, is almost psychological. Uh, they're, they're all in a very highly stressed state. Uh, they have a lot to learn, a lot to keep on learning. Uh, hopefully, they all have a certain amount of sense of inadequacy uh, because they're new at it. Um, so I find one of the best tools to use is actually humor and laughter. I'm trying to make it a little bit easier on them and trying to sh uh, show, show some sense of incongruities of, of just being by the book with everything and also try to find out for them, quite frankly, what are they doing besides uh, studying medicine in their life and really try to promote that part in them and try to understand how that can integrate into their practice as well. The way they feel is going to help the way they practice and they should be aware of that and not feel they can just turn a switch off and on. Now I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna do all this. Okay, I'm gonna turn that off. Then I got the rest of my life. No, I think you have to look at it as a total package. And ultimately it's, it's, it's important that everyone try to learn how to be happy in their life, feel fulfilled in their life. Um, and I like, one thing I like to use when I talk to students and they're learning and learning and learning. And I say, you're learning the means of production, but there's also the meaning of life. And you have to balance, balance those two and never forget that there's more than the means of production, that what's ultimately gonna be important in your life is the meaning of life. So don't forget about it. So it's, a, it's an awareness of where they can go. Uh, but there isn't a there isn't a magic wand I can use. Yeah, I think it's the difference between being a uh, sort of uh, having a job, right? And uh, physicians, you know, being a physician has never really been looked at as a as a job. It just doesn't lend itself well to pure uh, shift work. Um, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, you can yes. try it that way, but uh, it, it's a lifelong learning process. And, and, and quite frankly, I think it's a true honor to be a doctor. Uh, uh, when, you, when, when you realize that you are allowed to be intimately involved with other people and understand them at a level that maybe no one else knows about even and share and share experiences, uh, which helps, which helps you as an individual too, as a physician in your own growth, but that, but, but that you are being allowed into this other person's life and that you should feel gratitude towards that. Uh, and so it's more than just checking off the boxes and finding the right code to use to, uh, to, to for the visit so that you will get uh, reimbursed adequately. 
All right, Dr. Sussman, uh, we're just about to wrap up. Is there anything you'd like to, to add before we close? Well, the, the, important, the importance of the individual, of human relationship, trying to have a smile, don't get overwhelmed with what's going on in life if you can help it. Uh, try to keep on balancing your life. Be compassionate. And on the other hand, keep on learning. Learning, learn, learn the science, but, but, but when you practice, be with the patient. It's not just doing, try to be. Be present with that be patient. Present. Yes. And uh, where can we find your book? Uh, it almost, I could, it's Amazon, independent bookstores, anyone can, uh, almost any way you could think of, you can get the book if you want. It's oh, saving the art of medicine. Well, I'm reading your book. I haven't quite finished it yet, but uh, I think uh, there's there's a lot of very uh, important uh, observations there. So I, I highly encourage everyone to take a look at Saving the Art of Medicine. Well, Dr. Sussman, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on The Art of Medicine. Right. And I appreciate having a chance to talk about it. It's been enjoyable. Thank you. Before we close, I'd like to give another thanks to our sponsor, locumstory.com, a resource where providers can get real unbiased answers about locum tenants. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner. See you next time. This program is hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Wilner, MD, FACP, FAAN. Guests receive no financial compensation for their appearance on the art of medicine. Andrew Wilner, MD, is Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, Memphis, Tennessee. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on this program belong solely to Dr. Wilner and his guests and not necessarily to their employers, organizations, or other group or individual. While this program intends to be informative, it is meant for entertainment purposes only. The Art of Medicine does not offer professional financial, legal, or medical advice. Dr. Wilner and his guests assume no responsibility or liability for any damages, financial or otherwise, that arise in connection with consuming this program's content. Thanks for watching. For more episodes of The Art of Medicine, please subscribe www.andrewwilner.com